inner speech starts out as originally the words our caretakers say to us that we internalize the the words like don't eat the cookies don't run in the hallway you know don't hit your brother don't go out uh, of you know don't run out into the street whatever all those voices become as the child moves away from the orbit of the parent they start regulating themselves by in essence recreating the parent as a figure that's present in their thoughts so all of this can be very fine and good if you grew up with an endlessly sympathetic compassionate loving kind tolerant emotionally uh, available uh, parent but suppose you're like the rest of humanity and uh, that you didn't only get those messages not only will the mind, the child internalize the negative uh, messages they hear, but in fact the human mind is gravitated or set or inclined to introject the most emotionally difficult messages we receive. Why is that? Well, there's lots of research. The great psychologist and, and Nobel, the Nobel Prize winning Daniel Kahneman showed that there's something called the peak end rule, which is people tend to remember the most psychologically alarming states from an experience, as well as the very last states of an experience we tend to, to remember. And uh, other psychologists have posited the brain has what's known as negativity bias, where we tend to listen and internalize and remember negative voices, negative experiences, negative ideas more than we remember instill in the brain positive messages, positive thoughts, empowering ideas. This is because your brain, like mine, is set up to survive. And the brain uses uh, or deploys two-thirds of the emotional uh, alarm system known as the amygdala, two-thirds of it is devoted to negative experiences, focusing on all the bad stuff we hear and remembering it. So it's very common that people will pinpoint the most negative language that they hear spoken to them as a child and internalize it and then repeat it to themselves as the inner speech that they annotate their lives with. We do, we all need inner speech because it's how uh, we make sense of life. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, but before we go there, uh, the Dharma teaches, the Buddha teaches throughout the Pali Canon uh, that when we encounter suffering, the first thing to do is unpack it and to see the different components of suffering that are in play. Not to view just the fact, a global sense of, oh, I'm really miserable now, but to see exactly what that misery, that distress, that agitation is comprised of. So when we unpacked her experience, what we found was, one, what's called in Pali, Dukkha Vedana, but simply what it means is her body was constantly tight, armored. She was traveling around in this state, physical tightness, where her shoulders were up, her belly was tight, her face, um, and her breath was very shallow. 
And this is important because the uh, somatic experience that we are in, the brain is very much set to use that as a cue to how to relate to experience. If your body is relaxed, your brain will, through a part of it called the insulin, note that you're physically relaxed and it will start feeling safer. But if your body is tight and armored and you're carrying around stress or a sense of unease or a sense of, you know, your muscles are tight, contracted, your the what's known as the right orbital frontal part of your uh, frontal lobe will read through the insula the fact that you are uh, tight, uh, you feel at an untrust, you're in an untrusting, condensed, contracted body. There's a woman who's done a lot of research of this, a wonderful uh, social psychologist, and I've talked about this. She noted uh, people who would sit all closed off, and she'd make them sit very, and when they were closed off, they'd be very, uh, in class, they would be very uh, quiet and very uh, shy and hesitant to speak. And when people sat open and in a very open, spacious body, they would be likely to talk and feel empowered and feel confident. And she had both groups of people in a large study switch their body patterns, and very soon their behaviors and personalities entirely started to switch with them. Because the, the mind follows the body. If you are panting, your mind will not feel at ease. If you are slowly breathing out, your mind will follow. It will feel a state of ease. So she realized that as she was traveling through this remote region, she was carrying around this body that was conveying, I'm not safe, I'm not comfortable, uh, there's something wrong. And the second thing we noticed was is known as uh, wrong intention, lika sankapa. Wrong intention was simply that she was going to this trip with the idea that she could somehow encounter or be with the perfect experience that would somehow solve the dilemma of life. That if she got to this perfect event, this perfect, you know, remote, very strange, very exotic situation that the experience would somehow soak into her mind and fix and give a new perspective and a new way to live. And if it was that simple, every one of us who took peyote in high school would be completely cured, because I guarantee you every one of us had a wild experience tucked in, uh, I know I did. The problem with beautiful, wonderful, uh, exotic experiences and encounters and, and all that, it's wonderful, and it does give a different, pro a different perspective on life, but it doesn't solve life. Even if you suddenly throw your normal, workaday, mundane perspective out of the window, and you take a lot of peyote, and you run down the street naked in Polynesia, and uh, you encounter a shaman who doses you with more peyote, and you dance naked in the sunrise, you are going to struggle deeply to implement those experiences and those perceptions into your life here. And you probably won't anyway 
recreate that experience very often. So while we'd like to be able to consume an experience that will somehow make our lives and our, our make it all work out to throw a, 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 to shake us out. Um, the problem is is that if you're still reverting back to the same mind as before, that's creating the same impossible expectations of yourself, the same internal judgments, the same extreme beliefs or unlikely views, then there's still going to be a problem. The experience is not a match for the mind that has internalized so many negative, critical, harsh, or abandoning uh, voices and self-caring tendencies. So the third thing, you know, it, the third uh, quality of this experience she had was um, what we call udaka or restlessness. And restlessness is, um, to quote Ajahn Brahm, it's a mind like a monkey swinging from branch to branch, finding fault with everything, every place the monkey is, a belief that there's something better elsewhere. In essence, it's a mind state filled with shoulds and coulds and autos, and there's some perfect place otherwise. And um, this is not uh, particularly surprising. The brain in its default state uh, there's a region that you and I have, you're probably already very familiar with its workings, you just didn't know it had a name. It's colloquially known as the me center. The center that adds me, 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 me to every experience. Why is this happening to me? Why are you looking that way? What do they think about me? What is he saying about me? What do you got in your mind about me? What, you know, why wasn't I invited? The me that's added to every single event of life when we have a, we stub our toe. Why did I stub my toe? What, I was about to, I was about to, why the F did I stub my toe? What the hell is the matter with me? I trust the hell is not one of the seven. So, we are set up, hardwired, because the me center actually does have a lot to do with extreme survival, in certain situations, it can be handy. Uh, when we are in really bad patterns with other people or situations, the me center can sometimes be useful in that it spots re repetitive patterns about the way people treat us and stuff like that. So it has a certain role in, in security and survival. But... Uh, as Jeffrey Schwartz and his partner at UCLA, who wrote the book on this topic, the me center, which is known as the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, I don't expect you to remember that, but it does have a name. It is a region, and it tends to be far too hardwired for, to the amygdala and to the language centers of the brain. So when anything frightening, stressful, unusual happens. The amygdala triggers, and it has a, uh, literally uh, fibers that go directly to the me center that's like, what does this mean? Why is this happening to me? Why, why is this going on? And then that triggers a lot of language, a lot of ideas, a lot of internal chatter. That internal chatter keeps 
conspiring obsessively, adding more and more and more self-centered thought. Now, fortunately, there's another part of the brain that can come to our rescue. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But it's important to understand that the inner chatter that is triggered by the knee center of the brain can really, really skew the way we experience life profoundly. So I'll give you an example. Without inner chatter, life to you would seem like a movie or documentary without a voiceover explaining what's going on. Have you ever watched television with the sound off? You know, maybe. And you really don't know for certain what's going on very often. You see images, people looking, or if it's a nature documentary, you know, a strange animal, then another animal, then a savanna, then you're like, what the hell is going on? Somebody turn on the, the, the sun. I don't know what that, I don't know what's going on. What, what, what is this about? Is it, you know, about a ferret? Turn it on. I want to see. So because without the sound, without the voiceover, it's just a bunch of images, just a bunch of random images on a screen. We don't know what they mean. And that's what life is like without the inner chatter, the inner speech. It's there to basically pick all the rich experiences and events and sensations and impressions that are flooding your mind in the course of a day. And with the help of the hippocampus, this, this inner chatter function, fueled by Broca's and Wernicke's region of the brain, they basically tell the story of your life to make it make sense. Much like the voiceover in a documentary uh, helps you make sense of what that documentary is about. Now, if we're lucky, the documentary narrator, in most cases, is quite sane and erudite. <laughs> I, for one, have always been greatly appreciative of cephalopods, otherwise known as octopus and other scuttlefish. So I'm going to use cephalopods as an example, because I can. I'm the teacher. I can use any example I want, and you get to just think, what the hell is he on about? So, suppose there was a documentary that you were watching about a cephalopod, an octopus. And octopuses, I'll have you know, are very interesting creatures. They build gardens, which I'm very impressed with. I'm very lazy, and building a garden is far beyond my skill set. And yet these, these, these octopuses do it at great depths. They're very, very smart. Probably amongst the most smart beings on the planet, they, like us, have what's known as social learning faculties. They can observe other octopi. I don't know if that's correct. And they can observe them and learn from their behavior. So they're very good at mimicry. But one of uh, the most amazing skills of the octopus is that it can hide in plain sight. It has pigment cells, a whole network of them, that allow it to change its appearance to look like the ocean floor directly beneath it. And not only that, it's got tiny little muscles that can literally mimic the texture of the object that's near. So literally it can change the form of its body to take on the texture of <clears throat> the ocean floor. So if you were watching a documentary on the octopus, 
if it was a wise narrator, the narrator would go something like this. The octopus is one of the planet's more amazing species, capable of hiding in plain sight with a network of blah, 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 giving you a whole bunch of facts that you would appreciate. Of course, if it was a documentary on endangered octopuses, octopuses, it would come up with all negative facts, like overfishing on this planet has threatened octopus populations in various areas of the world. And that would still be a useful voiceover, because it might spur us to take action on behalf of the octopus. So far, so good. But what if the narrator instead was like my mind on a bad day? It might go something like, Look at this stupid octopus. <laughs> what a failure. What an ugly garden. This guy hasn't done anything with his life. He's sitting there, he's got hours to build a garden, and he's put together this half-assed looking garden that's nowhere near as good as his neighbor. And just like his mother octopus and father octopus said, he hasn't really amounted to very much, nor should he have thought that he would. Anyway, you get the idea. Just having that different narrator in life, we can completely change the meaning of the documentary. It no longer becomes an appreciative or awe-inspiring documentary about the wonders of the octopus. It actually becomes this critical negative what the fuck is... Ooh. Say, uh, <laughs> what the hell is the matter with the... Uh, with this octopus? <laughs> it was the octopus that threw me. I was doing so well. But I get enlivened by cephalopods. <laughs> So, the goal is to, one of the goals of the practice, when the mind gets set on negativity, despairing, you ever be in one of those situations in life where you're in a job you want to get out of, a relationship you want to get out of, when the mind turns against something that we're in, and the mind then becomes a negative fault collector, and despairing, and, and throws all of this stuff onto the experience which makes it impossible or very difficult to stay and see things through and to get out in a skillful way or to gracefully exit a situation or to deal with uh, a conflict. So what do we do when we're in that state? Well, the first thing we want to do is rewire the brain, which is actually possible so that we don't all the time go to the me center of adding the personal negative, despairing, uh, fault finding, th this is never going to work out for me voice. And fortunately there's a part of the, the frontal lobe called the lateral prefrontal cortex, which it turns out, according to the research by not only Schwartz, but Shirley Lazar and other neuroscientists who do fMRI scans of people who meditate and who practice mindfulness, there's actually indications that the more you meditate on a daily basis, the more 
you begin to hardwire connections from the lateral, um, what is it, prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. What it does is it allows you to override fear and negative signals. And B, when it does, when those fear signals are forced into awareness, if your lateral section of your brain is functioning, it will not take it personally. It won't add a story about you. It won't make it about your failure. It is far more likely to look for a general rule. Like, oh, when I do this, then that happens. Or when people do this, then that happens. But it doesn't add a personal narrative about your identity and how flawed you are and why you should have known better. It generally tends to look for abstract principles to learn from any situation. You can tell when you're in lateral thinking, one, because it's far more associative, it makes leaps of logic, it doesn't add as much language in, it tends to not turn uh, or add it into a long narrative, it tends to simply look for the principles beneath an experience and what we can change. When people go from activated to calm after a long period of time when they've been in a bad relationship or a bad work or a bad situation and they're no longer taking the words of their boss or their ex-girlfriend or boyfriend or friend personally and they start to view the experience from a slight remove, what happens is the experience is no longer being worked on by the ventral medial me center, it's being worked on by the lateral center of the mind. So the goal is to do this sooner. How do we do that? One, feel the feelings in the body when the experience happens. Learn to create a safe container, hold the experience, but not adding all the language of trying to figure it out first. What does it all mean if you do it before you learn to hold the emotions you will add me, 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 me. Because that's the way your brain, like mine, is set up. So first we need to do somatic work. When we're suffering, find the disappointment, the sense that life should be better, should be different. Find it in the body, not as a story in the mind, in words, but as an experience. When I feel loneliness and abandonment, I feel it in my chest. When I feel fear that I'm doing something wrong or I'm making a mistake, I feel it in a tight stomach. When I feel anger, I feel it in my muscles and in the muscles of the face. I, when I feel like I'm repressing something that I want to say but I can't, I feel a strangling feeling in my throat. So that's the somatic ex expression of the emotional state. Go to it. Go to it. Go to the body first. Second thing is develop then a regulating breath. Now, in states of agitation, a regulating breath have nothing to do with the in-breath. They're just the exhalation, just making them as long as you can. That literally does something, and I'm not making this up. I urge you to look it up because it sounds so unlikely, but it tones the vagus nerve. That sounds like Las Vegas, but it's actually spelled V-A-G-U-S. It's the 10th cranial nerve that connects the brain to the facial muscles to the muscles in your chest. And when you feel safe and secure, your heart starts to beat slower because the vagal nerve tells it to. Vagal toning is creating more <coughs> conscious control of how your heart beats 
by how you breathe and how you, the emotional state you're in. So, long, very smooth out-breaths tone the vagus nerve. There's a wonderful set of studies by the psychologist Barbara Fredrickson at North Carolina where she did all this research into the vagus nerve. It's really fascinating. So, that's a really good practice to just find the out-breath, try to make it as long and smooth as you can. Another practice is to simply note signs of security. Look around, look for people that seem safe, remind yourself that you're not being judged, look around for any sign that you are in a secure setting. By noting and really lingering on signs of safety, you too will begin to detrigger the amygdala and create less reactivity. Secondly, then we move to the intentions. Instead of intending to acquire or get our peace of mind, security, happiness from out there, accumulating, making money, getting approval from others, and believe me, I'm all in favor of secure attachments to others, but when our intentions are set to get it from one specific other person or to simply amass security through work or through other strategies, it doesn't work. A far more skillful approach is to set our intention each time we go into new situations as how can I say yes to this experience and be with it on its own terms and learn how to feel safe and respond in a skillful way. Saying yes is a wonderful, valuable practice. It doesn't mean, oh great, I agree with this, this is really wonderful. It means, yes, this is happening right now, and my assignment is to see how I can meet this experience skillfully. When I start to meet an experience with, no, this shouldn't be happening, this is a mistake, this is wrong, this is absolutely unfair and can't be, you know, cannot be uh, in any way right, unfortunately what happens is I begin to emotionally go into very limited reactive states where I don't see what's available to me. I was once on this uh, sober spiritual trip with a bunch of different spiritual teachers and people like that, and oh boy, was that a mistake. And uh, we, we went somewhere, and the people I were with were this whole bunch of really fundamentalist Christians. <laughs> And they were on the plane, and they were disregarding all the messages from the pilot, and then they got put in the exact same small house of the, the retreat where I was, right next to me. And I woke up, and there they were at breakfast with their fundamentalist Christian faces. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I went, and I sat down, and I thought to myself, oh, I can't believe this is happening. They put them there, and I realized how much stress and suffering and the, the negative, critical voice was firing up in the mind. The body was becoming tight, and the breath was becoming shallow, and the voiceover of life was this was unfair and wrong. And I realized I was at a juncture. And I, I looked at my intention, which was, the underlying intention was, how can I get rid of these people? How can I be without these people? And I immediately just thought to myself, no, I'm going to just think, yes. Yes, there they are. Yes, they're going to be there. Yes, they will be the people at breakfast every day for the next week. Yes, they are sharing this vacation with me. 
And I had a wonderful time. Now, I'm not saying I spoke with any of them. I didn't really. I just, but I in no way fought in my mind their appearance. I in no way, when, I, there's, when I'm saying no in my mind to an experience, I actually fixate on it. When I give permission for something to be there and just think, yes, this irritating person, yes, this difficult situation is there, I don't think about it as much. I've talked frequently about Daniel Wegner's White Bears, so I won't go into and retell the story of it again, but if you're interested, just look it up. Daniel Wegner showed that when we try not to think about something, we actually think about it twice as often as when we give permission to the mind to think about something, then we tend to focus on it less. So finally, when it comes to the voice that's annotating our experience, when you find the inner voice, the inner narrator has become extremely despairing, pessimistic, speculative, catastrophizing, black and white, looking for the worst possible outcome. The key with that is to see if you can cultivate a, in your vision, imagine somebody that you know very well, and then ask your, invite them in, and ask them to take the voiceover mic of your brain, and ask them what this friend might say about the experiences that are going on in the documentary of your life. How might they narrate your experience? How might they talk about what's going on? How would somebody who cares about you, who wants you to be happy, who wants you to feel loved, how would that person annotate the experience? <coughs> Invite, cultivate a voiceover of awe, wonder, or appreciation, or at least care. And then give yourself permission to go back and forth between the normal voiceover of what the hell is the matter with me, why did I do this, why are other people doing this to me, blah, 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 to a voice of, oh, this is a challenge, but I've dealt with difficult challenges before. It won't be the first time, so how can I face this because I deserve happiness? And then bounce back and forth between the two voices. Eventually, as you experience how much more agitating and how much more difficult life is with that inner chatter, you might even find yourself naturally gravitating eventually just through the experience towards the other voice that you've cultivated. So I hope there was something of value in there somewhere. Maybe you can unpack something worthwhile. Um, so now we're going to go to a few questions. Just find a really comfortable seated position with um, balanced posture, your head feeling aligned with your hips. which in turn, if your head's nicely balanced, it's not moving in front of your shoulders or tipped forward, which are the two kinds of states where you'll put, uh, you'll engage the muscles in the back of your neck and your shoulders, and that creates strain. So simply, slightly artificially, uh, just slightly Keep the head slightly behind its normal position, especially when you're on a computer for most of the day. The head tends to drift in front of the body, and that creates a lot of uh, shoulder strength.
strain. And while it's okay for looking at Facebook and whatnot, while you're meditating, um, when our heads are moved slightly in front of the body, what also happens is there's a sense that all the things I need in life to make me happy and peaceful are out there, not inside of me. And on the other hand, if your head's nicely balanced over the hips, it sends this almost subtle message that gives us permission to bring awareness to what we are feeling and experiencing internally. So to keep the awareness spacious, we'll give permission to the mind to hear all the sounds that are present, feel all the sensations in the body, we might even have visual images that pop up in the mind. And the goal is to not add any more stories or inner chatter about whatever we experience, to not judge or narrate. And if you even have a narrating thought that pops up in the mind, that's all right, but don't add to it. So, you might, in the meditation, have a thought suddenly, oh, I wonder what that person meant by that statement earlier today. And that's okay, just allow that thought to arise and welcome it, but don't add any more thought, inner speech, just allow that limited inner speech moment to be there. Don't judge it at all. And as our, uh, we move through the meditation, try to have the overriding intention to be one of patience, gentleness, self-care, and care of other people around us. So what that means is if you feel an uncomfortable sensation in the body uh, associated with the way you're sitting, you can take care of yourself by figuring out a way to move that will reposition the body in a way that there will be less discomfort. But at the same time, caring for others means not creating distracting noise. So if you feel uncomfortable, just see if you can figure out a way to move that will not disrupt the peace of those sitting nearby. So let's take a few breaths just to develop the practice of using the breath to relax the body. So take a long in-breath through the nose and lift up your shoulders to the ears, like you're trying to touch your ears with the shoulders. And then when it comes time to release the breath, do that through the mouth and release the shoulders. 
So the in-breath is energy, the out-breath is relaxing. So once again, with the belly, pull in the belly now. Don't worry about the shoulders. Pull in the belly as tight as you can, and then breathe out and soften the belly. Very good. And then finally, squinching the muscles of the face and the arms, any muscles you want to keep tight, and then when you breathe out, relax and soften. So you can continue to do this, if you'd like, to other areas of the body that could use some ease, the muscles in the arms, legs, buttocks, facial muscles, muscles in the throat. Just take a few moments to tighten and relax. Almost like we're doing yogic savasana sitting up.
still it's a really wonderful practice to just allow the mind to be present without wanting to change anything, to do anything, to accomplish, resist, to just be open and spaciously aware, feeling the contact with the floor, feeling the clothes in the body, hearing the sounds drifting in from the street and the room, the images on the eyelids, any images associated with memory. States of tiredness and anxiousness, jumpiness, too much energy, too little energy. Sudden moods of worry, elation. It's all available. And yet the mind has a tendency to, when we are in a situation where we feel safe but not obligated to do the task, very often the mind will drift away chasing after speculative thoughts, worrying, catastrophizing, black and white, or simply fantasies. In this way we abandon our experience and we train the mind through much of our lives to not stay present in a caring way. If all we do with our minds is fix and solve problems or seek entertainment or distraction, then when we need care and healing, our awareness will not know how to do that. So this is your time to practice that How can you right now, with the experience you have right now, cultivate exactly what you would want from anyone else? Caring attention, understanding, sympathy, appreciation. See if in this time you can Give that all to yourself.
did you make your experience more easeful? You might notice that there is a slight area in the shoulders that might be capable of relaxing a little more, or the belly could be softened a little more, <coughs> or the face muscles could be released. where the out-breath could be a little longer and smoother, which will relax the mind, or the in-breath could be deeper to bring energy and health. The micro-muscles around the eyes could be released. Again, associating awareness and consciousness not with accomplishing or accumulating or resisting, but associating your awareness with the spirit of care and patience so that your awareness becomes nurturing
one of the most liberating practices in a meditation is to ask yourself, what can I let go of right now that would make my meditation easier, more peaceful, more conducive to just being present. So it could be letting go of struggling with a thought, an idea, letting go of a belief, for instance, that meditation should be easy, or that there's something wrong if my mind is jumpy. Simply accepting the presence of a physical pain can be even accepting that the mind is tired or whatever is present. Start from a place of greeting and being with rather than resisting or trying to change. So we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. All that means is take a moment to hold the image of yourself sitting here, your eyes closed, safe, cultivating tranquility or at least acceptance within. And just Noting that you have in this practice, in what you've just been doing, something very rare and precious. The world is filled with people who've been taught and believe that happiness and security and peace of mind is achieved through accomplish, accomplishing and competing, stealing, taking, fighting. that peace comes from using up the world's resources, that peace comes from addictive behaviors and substances, that you have a practice which 
can cultivate peace and acceptance and security and a sense of ease within that doesn't put you in conflict with anyone, that has no side effects, that is available anytime you want for free. So you have in your life something blameless, worth treasure. So when you hear the sound of the bowl, which indicates time to open your eyes, see if you can do that slowly. If we simply open our eyes quickly when we end the meditation, then we tend to push away all the body, breath, mood, internal awareness that we've cultivated, and we just go back to business as usual with the jumpy mind, the agitated or anxious or tired or striving or craving mind. So the goal is to rebalance, knowing what's around you, knowing what's going on inside of you, and see if you can use the rest of tonight's class to try to cultivate that state. <laughs>